Grab your Bible, whatever you may be reading God's Word with this morning, we're going to walk through a passage to wrap up the end of chapter 7. Oh yeah, children's church, you're dismissed <laughs> if you want to go. But anyway, everyone else grab your Bible. Uh, like I said, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 7 this morning. We're in the Gospel of John. We're going to begin in verse 40 here in a moment. And for the last several months, We've been looking at the series of events that began at the opening of this chapter as Jesus heads down to Jerusalem to partake of the Festival of Booths. And since we've spoken about that for several weeks, um, I'm not going to go over all the details of the festival or the activities that took place uh, this morning, but you can look back on the church's podcast. It's found in the church's website under the Sermon Archive, and you can figure out what this festival was about that takes place during this entire chapter in chapter 7. A series of events began in the opening chapter and how it's now led to what we're going to be looking at this morning. Our passage is focused on the reaction of the crowds and the people to what Jesus said in verses 37 and 38 that we looked at last week. In those verses, Jesus announced to everyone that was gathered at the temple on the last day of the feast called the Great Day that all people need to look to him as the source of living water in order to find fulfillment and to find satisfaction in life. And in doing so, uh, John points out in verse 39 that they would receive the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God uh, by placing their faith and trust in Christ alone. Um, This is going to happen in Acts chapter 2 when Jesus does his complete work of what he set out to do. He came to live a perfect life according to the word of God. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rose from the grave to show that he has the power over death to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And this is what John defines as him being glorified at the end of verse 39. Um, This morning we're going to be dealing with the reaction to the great proclamation that Jesus made again in verses 37 and 39. And people react to Jesus in multiple ways, not only in the Gospels, but today as well. And our text is going to reveal the way people react, whether it is in a positive manner or a negative manner, all reveal the mercy and the grace of God. Yeah, a positive and negative reaction to Jesus still reveals the mercy of God. God who has the power and the authority to make every individual bow the knee and to worship Him has decided from the very beginning of time, once He created mankind, that he was going to give them a choice on whether they were going to do that or not. It's what we frequently refer to in the church as free will. So I want to read this passage, but I want to read it with a passage in mind that comes out of Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, and it'll be up here on the screen. Paul was led to write, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And I want to kind of use that as a springboard into our passage this morning in John 7. We're going to begin in verse 40. And the word of the Lord says, When they heard these words, again that is referring back to verse 37 and 38, Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we, we give this time to you. Pray that you alone be glorified in this time. As we just sing the word amen, Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our lives. That our hearts would be ready to accept and receive what you've given us in your word. Father, your spirit will continue to move in this place, that you be our shepherd and our guide. Father, when we leave this place, that we have known we've been in your presence and we have been transformed to be more like you. Pray for the children's church and the teachers back there, Lord, that you would just use them as an instrument of your righteousness. And Father, if there's anyone in this building this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, we pray in agreement as your people, that today would be the day of their salvation. Guide and lead us through this passage, Lord, don't let me get in your way, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. So Jesus made it known in this particular chapter that he was actually at the festival booth. Even though he told his brothers he was not going to go down, he goes to the temple, the most public area, that takes place in verse 14. We're told it was in the middle of the feast. Up to that moment, Jesus was uh, just kind of in secrecy. He was private. He was having a worship time with himself and, and focused on God. And even at that moment in verse 14, the crowds become divided just as they're divided in our passage this morning. Some individuals were caught up in what they knew about Jesus, particularly where he came from in Galilee. Some were confused on why the religious leaders were allowing him to teach and speak in the temple, and they weren't doing anything about it, because it was common knowledge for those who lived in Jerusalem that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. It was on the last day of the festival, where we look at in our passage this morning, we're told that in verse 37, Jesus once again returns to the temple, and the proclamation we looked at last week comes again out of verse 37, 38, where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And as we see in our text this morning, the crowds are still trying to figure Jesus out. They're still trying to figure out what he's talking about, still trying to figure out who he is. And the Pharisees, for the most part, are trying to shut Jesus up. The reaction to Jesus by all parties involved, though, we get a glimpse on why and how people react to Jesus today. And that's the confusion with Christ. The question comes down to who is he? Now, some in the crowd were ready to announce that Jesus was the prophet. We'll deal with that in a second. Some were ready to announce that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Some were stuck on Jesus' origin. They didn't know that he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. He did come from the line of David. Some didn't budge because they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. Some were ready to kill him. Some were ready to worship him. Some were ready to announce him 
as the Christ, and some were ready to denounce him. Some were ready to lift him up, and some were ready to pull him down. Some were ready to find freedom in him, and some wanted to put him in chains. And every individual within our passage, just as every individual today has to deal with this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It is the most important question that every individual has to answer before they face Jesus and God face to face. It is a question that Jesus even posed to his disciples. He looked at them and says, okay, this, they told him the word on the street about him. He said, all right, that's fine, but who do you say I am? To which Peter pipes up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter got a that a boy that time. With all the confusion on Jesus' identity, I find it interesting in our passage, Jesus never speaks. He never enters into the conversation. There's nothing in verses 40 through 52 of Jesus saying anything. He doesn't try to debate with the crowds. He doesn't look at the ones who claimed him as a Christ and say, you're absolutely correct, I am the Christ. And the reason is because everything he has done leading up to this festival, all the ministry he's done, all the miracles he's done, all the demons he's cast out, all the teachings he has done, even while he's been in Jerusalem, everything he has done has led people to come to that understanding that he is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah who's come to save the world. But the people in our passage, like the people today, they had to come to their own believing faith. See, we learn something in Jesus' lack of words. We can't force people into salvation. You can't force people to be saved. We can't force people to have faith. I can, I can tell you, hey, you better have faith. But I can't force Jet to have faith. I may dunk somebody in a baptistry at a pool, but I can't force them to actually have faith in God and what Jesus Christ has done. See, faith is all a matter of free will. And that's why it reveals the grace and the mercy of God. He'll put all the information, all the truth right before us. But we have to decide individually, am I going to trust that? And am I going to put my faith in that? That's why, parents, we have to pray for our kids you can't force them into a relationship with God. They have to see you having that relationship with God and then come to their own decision, I want to put my faith in that too. I want to trust that. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. There's a lot of confusion with the crowds and what they were saying about Jesus. We're going to start with the last statement that they make. It comes out of verse 41 and 42. The reason I'm going to start here is because we actually have dealt with this previously when Jesus was in the temple in the middle of the festival. It was common knowledge for the people that Jesus came from Galilee. Matter of fact, we know when we read through the Gospels, Jesus set up his base camp of ministry in the town known as Capernaum, which was in the northern region of Galilee. It also seems to have been a common knowledge that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, which he did. And Nazareth was also in Galilee. It was also a common knowledge of some of the people 
on who Jesus' earthly parents were and the siblings or his brothers and sisters that were related to him. And here's the thing. If the people actually knew who Jesus' earthly father was, then they would have been able to figure out, hey, you know what? Jesus did, in fact, come from the line of David, which is part one of their hiccups. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, he referred to Joseph as Joseph, son of David. That word son there in Matthew 129 or 120 is, is the title speaking of an ancestor. So it's Joseph, an ancestor of David. What an, appears to be the unknown about Jesus in our passage this morning is that he was in fact born in Bethlehem. And the people could not get over this situation. And so uh, understanding the identity of Jesus, and answering the question on who is Jesus, the problem people sometimes have is they can't get past their foregone conclusions on what they think they already know. There have been numerous people throughout history that have had this issue. Two of them which come to mind are a man by C.S. Lewis and another man by Lee Strobel. You might know the name C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia as well as other great Christian literature books. C.S. Lewis, what some people don't know, actually began as an agnostic. An agnostic means you just search after knowledge. That is, uh, and you're opposed to anything being confined to one truth. And so since C.S. Lewis had this incredible mind, he began searching the scriptures with the intention that he was going to prove the Bible was wrong. And he was going to prove that there was no God, and Jesus was not the individual that Christians claimed him to be. And as he went through the scriptures, doing his own personal investigation, guess what happened? He came to the faith. Lee Strobel, he wrote books like The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case for fill-in-the-blank. I mean, he's got a whole series of them. Lee Strobel initially was a criminal law journalist. He started his journey as an atheist. So when his wife got saved, and she went to church and got saved, Lee Strobel was floored. He was so upset that he set out to prove how ignorant his wife was in coming to the faith. Husbands, by the way, just a heads up, If you want to seek out to prove your wife wrong, and even if you prove it and you're right, you're going to be wrong in the end. It's just the way it works. Take it from experience. But Lee Strobel, he sought out, so he started interviewing doctors. He started interviewing theologians and philosophers and lawyers. He interviewed preachers who had actually left the faith. Great evangelists at one time who had left the faith. He interviewed preachers who were still preaching, and he interviewed teachers. And after doing all this interview, and after doing all this investigation, guess what happened to Lee Strobel? He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And through his investigation, he wrote the famous book, The Case for Christ. The point I'm trying to make is some people are just stuck with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And some people are just stuck there because they're stuck in what they already think they know instead of what can be known as the truth. 
And so that is why it's our mission as God's people to take the truth to them and to guide them to an understanding of who Jesus actually is and really is so that they can decide based upon the facts. Verse 40 tells us, there were some in the crowds who believed Jesus was the prophet. Now we know Jesus was a prophet, but I hope we also know Jesus was more than a prophet. So when a part of the crowd referred to Jesus as a prophet, there would have been confusion even with that statement amongst them. They may have been referring to Jesus as the prophet, as in like the prophet Elijah, who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So they weren't quite ready to call him the Christ. Or they would have referred to a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses spoke to the people and said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. In either case, when the crowd says this is really the prophet... They were still confused, and they were still waiting for the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was a spokesperson of God. That's, that's what they say when he's the prophet, which he was, but obviously he was more than that. Another part of the crowd, verse 41, says this is the Christ. They were stating and proclaiming that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the one that has been spoken of by the prophets. And he had finally arrived to redeem God's people. But even with that comment, there would have been confusion amongst them. Some of them may say he is the fulfillment of the prophecies, but some of them may have been like the 5,000-plus who were fed with fish and bread, and they wanted Jesus to be the Christ because they wanted him to usher in a new kingdom of Israel by force. But... They have come to the consensus, he's greater than anybody else. Then there's this group who wanted to arrest Jesus because of things he did, things he said. It ruffled their feathers and made them look bad. So in our passage, we have four different views concerning Jesus, all wanting to answer the question, who is he? First is he's a prophet, the second he's the Messiah, the third he's a Galilean, and the fourth he needs to be arrested. And it's not much different than today. Many world religions do not deny the historical Jesus. They don't deny him. The things he said, they don't deny most of the things he did. But all the world religions who don't deny Christ, they proclaim him only to be a prophet and nothing more. Not God in the flesh, not equal with God, not the Messiah, not the Christ, just a prophet, a spokesperson for God. Obviously, as Christians, we believe what the people said in verse 41, that he is, in fact, the Christ. We've placed our faith in his complete work, in his perfection, in his holiness, and we submit to his lordship. And then there are some, just like the crowds on this day, who says that he's only a man. You know, he's just a Galilean. Then there are some who want to shut Jesus up. They want to shut his followers up, much like the religious leaders wanted to do. Who we say is Jesus is the most important decision we have to make. It's the most important thing that we proclaim. And it's not much different going on in our world today as going on in Jesus' day and people trying to figure out 
who he is. As all this confusion has taken place about Jesus' identity, we're told in verse 45 that the officers, and that's referring to the temple guards, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, the better reading of that particular verse in verse 45 is that the officers returned. Because in verse 32, the officers were initially sent out to arrest Jesus during the middle of the festival. And so the events of our passage, we learn from verse 37, are on the last day, the great day. And so the officers, or the temple guards, would have been under the jurisdiction of the high priest. And now what happened with them between the middle of the feast and the end of the feast, Scripture doesn't let us know. But our passage makes it seem to imply that what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus said in verses 14 through 24, 28 through 29, and verse 37 and 38... That what he said in those moments when the officers were coming for him, they began to get so captivated by his words that they could not bring themselves to arrest him. Now, we are also told a little bit of insight, and it goes throughout this entire chapter, that the reason they couldn't arrest him, the reason people couldn't lay their hands on him, is because his hour or his time had not yet come. And yet here we have these guards, these officers, they return to the chief priests and the Pharisees empty-handed. And just as a little side note there in verse 45, there was only supposed to be one chief priest on duty at a particular moment in time. But if you notice in verse 45, John is led to write it in the plural, that there were chief priests. That's because that particular role at this particular time when Jesus is ministering was under the control of one family. It was like a mob of chief priests. Annas and Caiaphas actually swapped the role back and forth between one another. Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. And so both of them are referred to as the high priest or chief priest within John's gospel. And the point of the plural is to let us know how corrupt these religious leaders actually were. Well, back to our passage. The officers, the temple guards, they come back to the Pharisees and the chief priests empty-handed. And so they wanted to know Why didn't you accomplish the task that was assigned to you? And we have to love the response. Verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. I loved it so much I had to underline it. Text lets us know that the religious leaders did not care for this response. (laughs) They did not request care for the way these guards were speaking about Jesus. They wanted to condemn the guards. And they condemned them, and they condemned the people whom they were responsible for serving and ministering to. They condemned the guards as being deceived. Verse 47, have you also been deceived? This word deceived there in the Greek means to be misled or to be led astray. And their condemnation upon the guards is actually a double judgment because they attach the crowds to them. They say, have you also been deceived? Implying that the people, the crowds, obviously had been deceived, and now you're falling into it as well. The phrase, this crowd, in verse 49, and you may read it as people in your version, 
is meant to be read as a derogatory statement. This crowd. Verse 49 could be read as such. These uneducated, low-level, and low-class citizens who obviously don't know the law or the word of God are under a curse. They have been bewitched by their ignorance and by the devil. That's what they're saying. But I love the guard statement. No one has ever spoke like this man. One reaction people have to Jesus is the amazement with Christ. And this comes down to several questions. What does he say? What does he say about himself? What does he say about God? What does he say about the word of God? What does he say about eternity? What does he say about people? What does he say about the kingdom of God? What does he say about how we should be living our lives? What does he say that we should be doing? And what should it look like? Last week, uh, Jason and Charlie went to, and I went to Kansas City for a conference. Basically, it was six worship services within a 24-hour period. Preaching was awesome. The worship was awesome. The atmosphere was awesome. We sat under biblical preaching and teaching, and we were just being poured into gathering with over a 1,000 people just to worship God. And sometimes you just you get amazed and you do something you don't normally do in worship service, but I did it at least twice, and I just pulled it out, and I wanted to record what was happening. Is almost 1,000 men were all singing together, and I know how much men love to sing. And just listening and filming it and, and just taking it in. And I found myself hearing the Word of God from these, these biblical preachers and these teachers and reading the Word of God and passages that I had read before, passages that I had become familiar with and I've studied before, I've preached on before, I've taught on before. And I'm reading these passages and I'm in this atmosphere and the Holy Spirit is moving. It's like the Word of God just became this 3D picture. Remember those things where you'd stare at until your eyes started watering and the thing would come off the screen? It was like the Word of God was just jumping off the page. I was like, when did that get there? Why didn't I see that before? I pray I'm always amazed with God's word. I pray that for you too, that you are always amazed with the word of God. To never get bored, no matter how many times you've read it, no matter how many times you've heard it. To never come to a Bible study or come to church and be like, well, I've read that before. Or I've heard that before. Because no one has ever spoken like this man. The God of the universe has given us his word by the power of his spirit to speak to our hearts. And it is full of power and authority and love and truth. No one has ever spoken like this man. What a great God we serve. As all of this is playing out, the comment by the religious leaders actually backfires on them. In verse 48, they pose a question to the guards. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Then in verse 50 and 51, Nicodemus speaks up. We first met Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He actually went to Jesus on his own at night in private to sit down with Jesus 
and to understand some of his teachings. We're not sure what happened after that conversation in John chapter 3, but Nicodemus is only found within the Gospel of John and in three places. John 3, here in John 7, when he speaks or takes a stand pertaining to Jesus. The other time is John 19. When he comes to the tomb, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and there Nicodemus is attached to a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body, and he donated his tomb for Jesus' body. And Joseph was said to be a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, we don't know when Nicodemus became a secret disciple. We don't even know what happened to him after the Gospels. We aren't told any about it anywhere in Scripture, but in our passage, good old Nick was willing to take a stand for Jesus despite the heavy opposition that was obviously in the room. If we were here, this would have been a very tense room. These people are aggravated. They are mad. They have murderous intentions upon their heart. And Nicodemus, being one of them, would have known it. And yet he speaks up. And I imagine when Nicodemus speaks up in verse 50 and 51, as the temple guards just got berated, I imagine the confusion on their face, because now here is a Pharisee speaking up on behalf of this man who we are completely amazed with. And there are going to be times in our life when we're going to have to speak up for Jesus. And we're going to have to share Jesus. And in those times, we are going to face heavy opposition and persecution. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But we learned something about this, is that the defense with Christ... There's a saying many of us have probably heard that those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. Now, the origin of that particular statement is debatable, and it doesn't really matter for this particular context. But if we aren't willing to stand for something, we will fall for anything. Nicodemus decides in this hostile environment that he is going to take a stand, and he is going to do so using the word of God. He's not declaring his belief in Christ at this moment. He is simply calling these men into accountability through God's word. And there's three particular passages he would have been pulling from, all from the book of Deuteronomy. The first one comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear. The other one is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 5. It says, If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods, or worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and is told to you, and it is told to you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, and certain that the, such an abomination has been made done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. This is exactly what the religious leaders wanted to do with Jesus. They wanted to kill him. 
and they had already condemned him as being Beelzebub. He has a demon. The final one comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 19. And it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accursed his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So this is what Nicodemus is doing. He's taking a public stand by himself, against his peers and his co-workers. And he's looking at him and says, Look, guys, God gave us the law on how to handle these sort of situations. And so we have to follow the law of God with this proceeding because we are not above God's word. His defense for Christ was the word of God which is what we are called to do, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. One commentator writes that the irony of this whole affair was that the Pharisees and rulers who condemned the crowd because they did not know the law were themselves lacking or acting in contravention or disobedience of the law and their own traditions in making such a hasty judgment about Jesus. And it gets even more ironic. Verse 52. The religious establishment replied to Nicodemus calling them into accountability. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And I wish we would have had more of this conversation. I wish I could hear Nicodemus say, not so fast. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we're told Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was in the region of Galilee prophet from the region of Galilee? Matter of fact, Hosea and Nahum, the prophets, came from the region of Galilee. It's widely believed that Elijah, Elijah and Elisha came from the region of Galilee. The prophet Amos came from the region, can you guess? Galilee. Jesus obviously ministered in Galilee. He set up his home base there. These religious leaders didn't take the time to think back when many of them still have, would have been alive. Hey, remember about 30 years when these magi came from the east, came looking for the king of Jews, and we came to them to let them know that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem? They didn't take the time to think back. They didn't take the time to, to, to think about the prophets and to think about their history. These men were so clouded with their hatred 
for Jesus. They couldn't think rationally. They weren't willing to do what was right. They weren't willing to obey the law. They weren't willing to investigate their matter. The judgment was flawed because what they thought was truth, it's the same cloudy judgment we faced when we present Christ to people in this world. This is why we're told, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. And how do we make that defense? Just as Nicodemus did. The Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what does God's Word say? God's Word tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's not a perfect human being on this planet. I don't care how good your kid is. He's not perfect. She's not perfect. They may be cute, but they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That phrase glory of God means his perfection, his holiness, who he is. None of us can hit the mark. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The word wage can also be read as cost. And what that means, I know all people die, we're all aware of that, but the word death there in Romans 6.23 means separation from the God of the living. So the wages of sin is death, and thank God God goes on, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is that gift? John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only son, and whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Why is that so important? Because Jesus came out and told us, Truth, right off the bat. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And get this, no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're here this morning, you're like, okay, I I know I'm a sinner. The question for you is, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the one who died for your sins and rose again that you can be forgiven? And have you made that public confession of faith? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be forgiven saved. And God has made it incredibly easy but incredibly important to respond to his gift. We admit to him that we're a sinner. We believe that Jesus Christ did what the Bible said he did in dying for the sins of the world, taking the full wrath of God upon himself. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins, and grant eternal life. And the Bible says we must confess that. That word confess from Romans chapter 10 means we must make it publicly known. Are you here this morning and that's something you need to do? I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us. And if you need to come down, this is a time of invitation. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit in this place. Lord, we pray that your kingdom and will will continue to be done. And if there's someone here this morning who's unsure or knows for certain that they are not saved, Father, I pray that you bring them down the aisle and today would be the day of their salvation. Forgive us we failed you in any way. We pray this all in the name of Jesus.